Here's what you're going to get in the comments from somebody. Well, they were you never Calvinists. They, yeah, you, you, you don't, don't understand, understand Calvinism. Calvinism. I, think, I think the reason for that response, specifically the reason for that response, is what I laid out before. There are only two options here. I'm correct. That's not an option. That's just the facts. I'm correct. So the options are you're deceived or you're a deceiver. And so you can't, if you, if you deny Calvinism, you simply can't understand it because it's not even on the table that I'm incorrect. I started questioning my friendship with Josh because I was under the impression that, well, Calvinism's the truth. Why ain't this guy believing what I'm saying? He's always got a rebuttal. He's always got a refutation. Why won't he just get it? And especially coming out of Calvinism, man, he can't understand it, right? I said, why don't the dude get it? Clearly the Holy Spirit's not working in him. Tyler and Josh, I am very glad to have you on today. Uh, I've been uh, graced with being able to be on your show a couple times and uh, we've talked about, you know, we have some similar uh, uh, perspectives coming into this whole Calvinism uh, discussion. And and I kind of learned that you, uh, Tyler and Josh, sort of have a, a story intertwined together in your both getting in and out of Calvinism. And so I thought it'd be fun to have you both on to kind of share about that. So uh, yeah, welcome on. I'm, I'm very uh, excited to hear your story. Thanks for having us, man. This is exciting. Oh, I think I'm Tyler's muted. There. I was. Yeah, there you go. My there bad. Go. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Jordan, and it's an honor for for us to you know share our story with you because, like you said, our stories really do intertwine at some point, and it's been a long road, bro. So it's an interesting one, I think. Yeah, yeah, and we we're gonna keep this pretty relaxed, and I think we we don't really know where this might go. We might, depending on the time we have, we might jump into some. Uh, tackle some of the Calvinist uh, proof texts and, and do some fun stuff like that as well. But uh, yeah. but before we jump into your story, tell us about the Faith Unaltered podcast. And it's a both podcast and a YouTube channel, of course. But just tell us a bit about what what you guys do over there. What's your your vision? And then uh, we'll just give this little plug to, to go subscribe um, to Faith Unaltered if you haven't yet. Yeah, yeah. So Faith Unaltered is a love child of two different YouTube channels, uh, namely this Complete Sinner's Guide is a podcast that I started back in 2019 as a radio show as well for a little bit. And then uh, Proselytize or Apostatize uh, was David Russell's YouTube channel. And we both had, you know, roughly around the same subscriber count. And we decided one day after having David on CSG, uh, dude, we're both in this to, you know, to promote Jesus and, and really to, you know, share the gospel with as many people as we can. Why don't we really combine our efforts into this, you know, take the word workload off of you, take the workload off of me and really combine and, and try to expand this into something huge. And so a couple months later, faith and altered was born. Uh, our goal has really always been the same. David and I had similar very similar interests uh you know doing our own thing for a little bit and so we just combine those uh those two visions and that's first and foremost lead as many people to jesus christ as the holy spirit will allow uh and and secondly really try to get down to truth i mean truth is objective i know that's kind of controversial this day and age but we believe and we know that truth is objective. Truth is a person, namely Jesus Christ. 
And so we try to understand as much as we can, as much as been revealed through the gospels and through tradition, uh, that, uh, that really, you know, tell us about who God is. And so the way we do that is we bring on differing, uh, views on our channel. Uh, we're really diving into because it's a main focus for three of the co-hosts anyway, on faith and altar, we have four, uh, four main co-hosts anyway, but orthodoxy, uh, Eastern orthodoxy has really been a primary focus, uh, for our channel lately as well as Protestantism in general. And so David, uh, our good buddy, David Russell, who's the other founder of, of Faith Unaltered, uh, he's, he's very diehard Protestant, and we love him to death for it. And so you see a lot of you know interaction between the differences between Eastern Orthodoxy and Protestantism, but we're trying to get back to those similarities and where we have common ground as well. So that's been a big focus for the channel, but again, ultimately we want to, again, lead as many people to Christ as possible, and I'll let my other co-host add anything he wants to at this point. Well, pretty much the only thing I would add is uh, is our, our recent venture to try to branch out um, and create more of a yeah. network platform than an individual show out of Faith Unaltered. Um, mm -hmm. We're ultimately trying to expand a bit. We started hosting uh, Dane Von Ice as, uh, as uh, the Three Crowns host, uh, which is a Trinitarian apologetic show. And then I'm going to be hosting a particular segment on uh, one for one or more Friday a month uh, called Cosmic Corner, which is going to be about, you know, addressing modern materialistic worldviews and, and, you know, re-enchanting the imagination to see the world as a, as a place of meaning, you know. Uh, and, and then we're, we're also adding, uh, another show coming up soon here that I don't know that we want to necessarily mention who it is yet. Uh, and we'll keep that under wraps. Uh, we'll keep it a secret for now. Yeah. We're, 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 we're building and we're growing. And so, uh, the intent is actually to create a, mm -hmm. uh, a network for Christian content that is going to achieve the same goal. And so, uh, we have big plans. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. Cool. Well, I've enjoyed uh, the stuff I've I've been able to uh, be involved in with you guys so far, and um, yeah, I think the the Eastern Orthodoxy stuff, you know, there's some some things there that I'm I'm intrigued to dive into a bit more in, in the future. Um, unfortunately, right now for me, there's so many different topics and books I need and want to read, and people even sending me books and then wanting me to read them and be interviewed that's just the amount of the amount of time to do all that at this point i'm i'm quite limited but we'll pray for um, you brother <laughs> thank you thank you i need it um, lord have but, mercy <laughs> i am very excited to hear your stories because i've heard little tidbits here and there and i but i don't i don't really know uh, uh much at all of of how things actually went down um i i wanted to at at first here, before we jump into your story, just to give um, both of you maybe an opportunity to briefly share, like, why, why, do, why is this important? Why do you think maybe, or I guess, first I should ask, do you think it's important to talk about this specific topic? We're talking about Calvinism, Reformed theology, and obviously we are among countless thousands or maybe beyond that YouTubers right now making anti so-called anti-Calvinism videos. Why, why do this? Uh, what's the point? Um, why does this matter? Or is this just being contentious? Is this, 
uh, aren't there better things to do? Shouldn't we just be preaching the gospel? I mean, you know, all those kind of questions that Mm. uh, I don't know if you're, if you make any number of videos kind of critiquing Calvinism uh, on YouTube, more than likely you're going to get those sort of objections from, uh, um, in large part, it's going to be Calvinists, but even from non-Calvinists who are going to be kind of coming with this idea of, you know, you're just wasting your time. This is, nobody's ever going to know and understand how these things work. It's just a mystery. Just leave it alone and focus on other things. So that's kind of a long-winded way of asking why, why even have this conversation or conversations like this in the first place? Well, Jordan, straight up, Calvinism's heresy, and we don't like that around. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> Just coming right out of the I gate. mean, <laughs> look, if you put yourself, so I like to give this analogy, Jordan. If you put yourself into a time machine and you go back to the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh ecumenical councils, and you tell the church fathers what you believe as a Calvinist, they're going to look at you and say two words, get out. Because all there's a lot of things, and I think, and I'm not trying to be hard on my Calvinist brothers and sisters. Like, I love them to death, but I think that, and and we'll talk about this a little bit later. For me, anyway, there are, and I found this out diving into early church history. Okay, so if you take things like just penal substitutionary atonement, for example, to their logical conclusions as a Calvinist you run into some major problems, namely like Nestorianism. We're all familiar with that word, I would think, um, and, and just anti-Trinitarianism. Now, I'm not saying that Calvinists go around tooting their horn and, and proclaiming to be Nestorians or even anti-Trinitarian. Of course not. Of course not. But what I am saying is that the logical implications of some of these doctrines combined does lead you into some major problems that are indeed heretical. I think I think also the the reason why it's important to confront these topics is because this is going to be something that's going to be uh, the bedrock assumptions that are built into somebody's thinking that are going to guide the way that they consider the problems that emerge when you begin to to read and study scripture seriously. Because there's always the questions. We would love scripture to be so much more explicit. But John himself said, if we wrote down everything, there wouldn't be enough room in the world for the books that it would require, right? And and mm-hmm. I think 2,000 years of church history has proved that absolutely true. The, the, the reason why these conversations are necessary is simply because we don't have every explicit piece of data to make sense of everything that would be required to have a worldview that encompasses creation and outside creation, because that's what Christianity is claiming to be. It's claiming to be... Uh, the the truth about the universe, the truth about what's in front of you, as well as what you can't see, and so if if that's if if anything is to be taken seriously at all, I think it's that um, is that this this worldview is going to be something that informs literally everything about you, everything you do, everything you experience, all of these things, and so if we're if we're captivated by a worldview that is in essence unlivable then we're going to be frustrating our potential left and right. We're not going to be able to engage with reality in a way that, that, that satisfies us, right? Satisfies the spirit, not just satiating your body like a hedonist or anything like that, but genuinely coming to a place where you're like, yeah, I am satisfied 
with where I am. I feel the workmanship of the workmanship of God in my life and in my person. And I feel as though where I am right now is a place where I can be satisfied. I can just live in comfort in this place. And that's fine. Right. Not that you're always going to be in that place, but there will be times that your worldview affords you that experience. And if you have a worldview that doesn't match reality, you will not be afforded that experience except by accident. Powerful words. And it's, it's just the, um, the expression, I guess, to simplify it, you are what you eat. And, and, you know, Calvinist reformed folks do have a specific concept of God. And to me, this, this all comes down to yes, truth. But as you, as you said, Jesus is the truth. So this all comes down to our conceptualization, what comes into our mind, like uh, we were talking about Tozer earlier, and he has this quote, one of the most important things about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God, something about uh, something along those lines. And so this this has to do with our concept of who God is, what he's like, the truth about him, and and how you hold that inside of you. Um, yeah, as you, as you said, Josh is going to have just... <clears throat> innumerable impacts in in every aspect of life from from what happens in in your your mind and heart when you are reading a page of the bible to what happens when you approach god to pray or or as you relate to people around you um and and this this maybe would lead to though a a question because Tyler, you jokingly, obviously, uh, uh, kind of acted as if you're going to just come in, kicking the doors down, saying this is a heresy and and all that. But, but I have, yeah, I I have people that are um, get pretty regularly upset with me um, who support what I'm doing, but they want me to to speak more harshly and and be more. Uh, I guess condemning in a sense, clearly of, of mm. uh, I don't you know sometimes just Calvinism itself as heresy, but I think also to make a hard stance of you know Calvinists you know aren't saved or or they yeah. are believing a false gospel, and so I guess the question is why you know as as we're talking about this impacts Calvinism does impact your your view of God, how you think about him. And it does have n negative repercussions, you know, as Josh said, in, in all areas of life. So mm -hmm. people hear that, though, they hear me having these sort of conversations. And then their thought is, well, why, why are you not just calling this out for for being heresy? Then just call call it as a heresy, call out the John Pipers and the John MacArthur's and the John Calvin's and all the rest as heretics and um, and make it clear. So I guess I have a hard time doing that, but I want to I want to get your guys' thoughts on on that, and maybe how would you answer back to to those people who are genuinely I think feel that that's what should be done, sure. but why do you maybe not see it that way? So I think there's first and foremost a distinction needs to be made, Jordan, uh, with the whole idea of heresy and 
loss of salvation or not saved at all, right? So first and foremost, we don't tell people, especially individuals, that they're not saved. That's above our pay grade. We're not God. We don't make that decision. God has mercy on whom he has mercy on, period, in the subject, right? And so it's not our job to say you're saved and you're not. And and that goes for, for anyone, really, uh, in my opinion. Now, the the thing of it is, though, whenever we talk about what is heresy and, and this word that gets brought up a lot in these conversations, namely, what is an anathema? What is, what is this concept? Does that mean you're damned to hell? I've heard that before. I've heard this word means that you're cursed uh, to go straight to hell. I think, matter of fact, it was John MacArthur. Don't quote me on that. I'm pretty sure it was him, though. Uh, Y'all would have to look that up, or your audience would anyway. But basically... Him and James White have this idea that anathema means to go straight to hell. And it's just not that. To be anathema means to be excommunicated from the church, period, in a subject. Now, does is God's Holy Spirit working outside of the church? The East has a saying that I, I really like, and it, and it goes a little something like this, that we know where the Holy Spirit is working, but we do not, we can't say we do, or we, we can say where the Holy Spirit is at, but we cannot say where he is not, okay? And so, in essence, what that means is, is the Holy Spirit only working in the church? No, of course not. That's not, uh, That's I don't think that's ever been the view of the fathers or, or anything like that, but the point I'm trying to make, there's a difference between heresy, somebody believing a false doctrine, and that means that person is not saved at all, okay? There are probably things that I believe that are wrong, does that mean I'm not saved? No, of course not. And so, and, and that goes for you guys as well. But the point is, is that I do think, it, first and foremost, I think you have to have a foundation for what we even label as heresy. And what I mean right. by that is you have to have a foundation of the truth first and foremost, right? And so if something defers or if something goes off the tracks from this standard, then by all means, if it's a false teaching, I mean, we're warned over and over and over again, not only in the Gospels, but in the Epistles and even the Old Testament, to be on the lookout for false prophets, to call out false teachers, this, that, and the other, right? And so you can do that without condemning this person straight to hell for it. We say repent, we want these people to be part of, of the true faith, the apostolic tradition that has been handed down you know, for, for 2,000 years now. But I think you can go about it without that false dichotomy in mind, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think I agree with that. I, I, I think that when, when the H word is thrown around and it's not in a jest, a lot of the time mm -hmm. what we see, what I, my experience, let's say, is that the H word heresy is being thrown out by the Calvinist as mm -hmm. an end all often for the conversation because they feel like they have the historical high ground somehow when, when bringing out this idea and right. trying to foist it on you that you have a weak view of God that doesn't comport with what the scripture says, not realizing for even a moment that what they're teaching is in fact contrary to the people who we're using this term to condemn people who are making heretical teachings from the very beginning that mm -hmm. they themselves would be in a camp that would have been dissociated from from the church very early on it's not like it's not like the idea of 
you know, free will and absolute predestination or anything like that were out of the, like those were already cards on the table by the time the church was formulating what we call the canon and all these other things, right? This is not a new problem. This is an ancient problem. And the fact that it keeps resurging itself, the the fact that it keeps re-emerging, like all of the other cyclical nature of of these these heretical teachings will emerge throughout history because somebody's going to be like, oh, aha, I have it. The church has been wrong all the time. And if you want to know the truth, then you have to subscribe to my esoteric secret knowledge that I've just obtained on my own privately, separate from the church. And the church is like, yeah, separate from the church. You got it. Have that over there, over there, away from us, right? Yeah. And so it's like that separation that's being illustrated is not supposed to be an insult or a dirty word. It's right. a technical phrase that means separate from the church, right? right? In, in a more technical sense, a heretic is somebody who's teaching false or contrary doctrines that are separating the church. Mm-hmm. And so when when somebody comes along and they're teaching something, and it's becoming divisive, and even their shtick, let's say, their thing is to be divisive about it. Technically speaking, that is heresy. That is a heretic. That is a person mm-hmm. who is causing division with a teaching that is contrary. And so, mm-hmm. technically speaking, a lot of people who are Calvinists and a lot of people who are not Calvinists are actually being heretical a lot of the time. On that basis. Right. Exactly. And so, it's, it's the case. I think it's the case, and it's a great comfort to me. That God covers our confusions, and if he doesn't, we all have a problem. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I guess when it comes to heresy, it, it's it's interesting to me, and I, I do want to get to your, your story here soon. I have a bad bad issue of always planning to get right to the topic, and then— And you never you know, do. Especially when it comes to this. I just <laughs> never do. I just can't. But, hey, we share but, the same problems, bro. Yeah, You're yeah good. I know. That's why <laughs> I'm, I'm just letting it happen and not worrying about it. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think about there is, like you said, such an emphasis on— heresy and warning about false teaching, false doctrine in the New New Testament, especially especially in the epistles. But, you know, when yeah. you look at, you could argue maybe that Jesus uh, didn't seem so concerned or, or with, with doctrine per se, or, um, you know, right thinking. In other words, it seems like Jesus's issue, what made him upset uh, uh, the sort of people he was most upset with, obviously we all know it was the Pharisees, but it was it was their their injustice. It was their lack of compassion. It was their lack of empathy. It was their lording themselves over others. It was their mm. not not becoming a not taking what they were believing uh, from the law of Moses and holding to, and letting that move them into being a, a, a people in a position of authority who served uh, uh, and, you know, mercy and, and um, what, what's the verse? Uh, if you had understood, if you had understood these things, uh, you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's just leaving me now, but mercy, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's, that's something along oh, okay. those lines. And so, yeah, yeah. So, so I guess my point here is that, you know, often when, when I think about heresy, I think about correct 
thinking, aligning with a certain set of doctrinal propositions. And um, mm -hmm. but where where's that line between, you know, because how, how much at the end of the day, when we're, you know, standing at, at the gates of heaven, as it were, is guy going to, you know, have a, a notebook that says, OK, he believed this correct fact about me. He believed this one, check that. Oh, he didn't get that one right. You know, and so I think I think oftentimes in these discussions of heresy, it, it, it can almost lead to that sort of perception of, of how this all works, that really that God is, you know, is, is God really going to, you know, make his judgments on us based on, you know, whether we've got all the facts right about him. Um, and so I don't I don't even know exactly what I'm saying. I just think that this is something this is interesting to me and things I'm still yeah. trying to work out of, of where's where's that line, you know, between right thinking and right action, orthodoxy or yeah. orthopraxy and, and which one really in God's mind is is more important. Is he more concerned with whether you're loving your neighbor or whether you are adhering to or not these certain doctrinal propositions um, and so do with that what you will i was so, man uh, I, ahead, you're good yeah just real, just real quick god because i'm really just going to piggyback off what you said a while ago i think the two go hand in hand right and that's namely because of what josh yeah. said a while ago and i like the way you phrase it jordan you you are what you eat and namely you become that which you consume right mm -hmm. and so given that Jesus said, you know, just straight up, that the the things that we do stem from our heart. We're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our body, right? And so keep in mind also that in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus says, go forth making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that I've commanded you. So is it more so about getting everything about God right? I don't think we'll ever know everything there is to know about God, period, in the subject. But what has been revealed to us, what the apostle, what first and foremost, what Jesus taught to the apostles and the apostles handed down, I think that is important. And that's that foundation that I was talking about earlier that separates those who are outside of the church or anathema uh, from those who are inside of the church. The the only other verse I want to quote just right now anyway, uh, 2 Timothy 2, uh, chapter 2, and I'll just start in verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in uh, Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so there's this idea of pass down what I've taught you, Timothy, from Paul that comes from Christ, right? And have this have this tradition go on and go on, you know, and, and, and here we are today, 2,000 years now that this apostolic tradition has been handed down so far and so much. So, so I say all that, and, and then I'll hand it over to Josh, to say, one, I think the two go hand in hand. What we consume mm -hmm. in our knowledge, in our heart, and, and those different things really start to show in our, uh, the way we act, the, our practicality. So that that's yeah I think it, I think they're both important. Yeah. Good. Uh, I I think I think the 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 symbol of eating 
and becoming is something that has a lot more to it than we have time to give credence for. But mm-hmm. just um, keep in mind the Eucharist at this point. Right. I was going to say there's there's <laughs> something there's something very conspicuously waiting in that 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 saying that actually is rather revelatory. But there, there's two things that I would that I would point out about the proposition problem is what I would call it. Right. Where you have ultimately let's say the landscape has been formed by those scholars who have the jurisdiction and say so to form the landscape. And what they did was build the idea that intellectualism is the same thing as correctness, right? And that the idea that the highest form of knowing something is being able to articulate it in a, in the form of a proposition, right? That's not the highest form of knowing something, right? That's not even close to the highest form of knowing something. And in fact, I can have articulate understanding of a proposition without ever knowing anything about the thing being articulated. And what I mean by that is you could give me every single factual facet of my wife's character, her personality, and even her physical traits. And never once would it give you the knowledge that I have of my wife. Zero percent of it, in fact, would be translated. None. Because it's all experiential, participatory, procedural knowledge that I have in my experience of being one with her. That's relationship. That's not a proposition at all. And I think the church has gone too far in one direction to try Mm -hmm. to make everything a cliche, right? But when we say Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, that's actually only half true. It is a religion, which is why all those guardrails that Tyler just described are actually necessary. But it is primarily relational, both between me and God and between me and you. And that's ultimately what Christianity is meant to be, is to be this lived, this lived participation in the life of God and as an imager of God in the earth being his representation. If that's what, like, if I could give Christianity its due to say, this is what it's meant to be, that's what it's meant to be, is I can love you because I am loved I am loved because he is love. That's Christianity. You see Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And so Mm -hmm. he has brought me into one relationship with him that allows me to be informed by how I should be in relationship with all others. And if that's not the primary focus of Christianity, we're wrong. Period. That's just like if you have any other emphasis besides God's love for man man's love for God and man's love for other man in Christ, then you have the wrong Jesus. You have the wrong Christianity. I don't care how well you can articulate it into propositions. That makes zero difference to me, right? And so ultimately what we have is not necessarily just the idea of having articulate propositions that I have a checklist of things that I can go, yep, 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 ticket to heaven. Like that's, I think that's silly. I think that that's two-dimensional and it doesn't work. And I also think that it's a breeding ground for idolatry um, in that I can, I can start to worship my idea of who I think God ought to be because of the propositions I've articulated. And in doing so, I can put up a wall that guards me from ever actually meeting him. Um, and what I mean by that is exactly what every cult around the world does is put up a barrier between you and inquiry so that you can't, in fact, learn. You no longer need to learn because you have a satisfied certainty that traps you like a cell wall, right? And as long as you're satisfied with that certainty and you close the door, 
you seem like you're safe on the inside and all the screams on the outside that are telling you to come out sound more like a threat than like a comfort and you stay there. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, if, you know, if I, if I'm, if I created a really realistic portrait of the cross with the Christ on it and it looked so real that it brought you to tears and it showed you just the majesty, beauty, horror, everything that was going on in that moment as he was breathing his last breath and you saw it and it gave you, Oh, you know, that experience of awe and just whatever it would be amiss if you began to think that the portrait was the Jesus that you were in awe of the portrait is not the Jesus. The portrait is a likeness to bring about that awe, but that awe should never live in the portrait. It should live in the person. And so we, we oftentimes I think get caught up in worshiping our doctrines uh, rather than worshiping the one, the doctrines are meant to be pointing to. And I think that that's why propositional thinking is useful, but also deeply, deeply problematic when it's not guided by the fact that this is all really meant to be something that you live out primarily. You can have wonderful, remarkable old ladies, 75 years old, sitting in the back of a church who have just been a shining example of God's sac self-sacrificial love, who could never articulate to you the, hy the hypostatic union or, you know, the eschaton or anything about election. It's like that's could, that could be any, that couldn't be any less relevant to their lives because it's never helped them love their neighbor. It's never helped them go closer to God. It's never actually been a hindrance to not know either. And so it's, it's really something that, that is deeply rooted in their person that they can then live out and express properly and be that expression of God, the image of God in the earth. They can participate in that without any explicit propositional knowing. Uh, I think mm -hmm. that we've gone a lot in the, uh, quite far in the wrong direction by thinking that articulation is how we get to truth rather than, you know, living it out. Yeah. And that, that's, <clears throat> I think maybe brings a good balance to what, you know, maybe why I raised the issue in the first place, because like Tyler said, obviously it's not, either or it's not oh well yeah you can throw out one we just got to figure out which one we actually need it's, it's you can't you can't have one without the other and it's this is really the aw tozer quote that i quote in the first place which is what you know most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about god that whole um idea uh which you can you know it's aw tozer it's not scripture you can take that or leave it but i think there's definitely some truth there that says that what the 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 knowledge the facts the the doctrines that we hold in our heads is going to to determine many things about about us and so yeah so it's not one or the other but i think maybe what i was you know what what leads me to ask it in the first place is is because perhaps we have kind of put the emphasis a little bit too far at times in the wrong place and Right. Um, yeah. And I would think that the a person like you, you're describing the little old lady who sits in the, the back of the church that that could, you know, have this this genuine uh, interactive relational, you know, dynamic in their their experience of God and, and how they live out their lives. But but, you know either be a, a Calvinist, but not really have good reasons for, for holding to it or not. Uh, but that doesn't, that doesn't determine her actual position with, with God. Uh, God isn't looking at that person as being somehow secondary in their spiritual, you know, position. Uh, and so maybe, maybe I think that's, that's kind of what, 
that's when I hear people kind of go immediately to that place of you need to call out Calvinism as, as heresy and you need to to bas basically communicate. People want me, many do at least, to communicate on my channel that, hey, if you're believing Calvinism, you're in danger of hellfire pretty much. And so and I just have a, a problem doing that. And I think that what I would hope people see is that I think God is um, beyond that. I, th I think the way he relates to us and deals with us, uh, uh, you know, fortunately for all of us, it is uh, <laughs> a lot more nuanced than that. Um, and and I think he does, as cliche as it, as it is, he does see the heart. We look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And, and we can see the outward of what a person claims to believe and all the doctrines they claim to hold to. But but God knows what's actually what. What is going on in that person's heart in terms of do they have fear of the Lord? That is the beginning of wisdom because, well, if they have fear of the Lord, they might have, you know, they might have some ignorance on a lot of other things, but they have that, that beginning, <laughs> the beginning of wisdom, that, that basic fundamental element of, of what is needed to, to, you know, produce a uh, living relationship with God. Uh, and, and so, so I think just not adding, adding unnecessary things to that and not, not, like you said, not, not going above our pay grade and making determinations about whether it's teachers or just adherents of any system and saying, well, they believe X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I'm going to make a claim about what God thinks about them and what their eternal destiny right. is. That's just something that I feel very uncomfortable doing. Um, and I, I don't I don't think that's our job to do, so. You know, you could even nuance that a little bit too, Jordan, is like, I, I hear what you're saying. So I would say the same thing about like, for example, one is Pentecostals, you know, you talking about the heart, God is God judges the heart, right? And so I always use or, or try to anyway, if somebody asked me this question about, well, are they going to hell or are they saved or whatever, like like you just said, uh, you know, reiterating what I said, it's not our job to judge whether someone's going to hell or not, right? We all, those who are still living have time to repent, um, this, that, and the other. But I see a difference between someone who knows the, so for example, I'm using one as Pentecostalism as an example, somebody that knows this what what we say somebody who's acted and and interacted with trinitarians who know what they believe and they absolutely condemn have, have went over the councils have understand what the apostles were teaching and and what as trinitarians how we explain what the trinity is for example uh somebody that attacks that and a difference between them and someone who misunderstands or doesn't necessarily know like one is Pentecostalism, you know, was what they grew up with. That's all they've ever heard, right? I think you can be, you know, you can distinguish between someone who's actively attacking true teaching versus someone who really doesn't know what true mm -hmm. teaching is, but rather knows what they grew up with. Another way you can do that you can actually nuance that too is kind of on the same route, but with people who and, and I told Josh this a long time ago, kind of getting into my story a little bit, but but not so much. But I told Josh, and it, it, it's like it was just yesterday, that we were on the phone. I forget exactly what we were talking about, but I told him, I said, you know, 
if Calvinism turned out to be false, like nothing would change, I would still have Jesus at the end of the day. And Josh made a really good distinction earlier about, you know, turning your thoughts and actually making them an idol, right? And, and your thoughts, your preconceived notions about God actually being an idol. I think that's another way to test, you know, ask someone, well, if Calvinism were turned out to be false, I know you believe it's true. And this goes really for anything, I think. And, me, and I'll just use myself as an example with Eastern Orthodoxy. If Eastern Orthodoxy turned out to be false, what would you do? Well, it doesn't matter. I would still have Jesus. I don't need a system per se. I don't need a system. Are those guardrails necessary? Yes. But is my focus, is my Christianity, is my relationship with Jesus based on a system or a person, you see? And for me, that was, I, I mean, I just think that that's a really good test. That was the thing that really opened my eyes into actually leaving Calvinism and being more comfortable to leave Calvinism was that systematics can be false. But if they are, and they're proven to be false, I still have Jesus at the end of the day, bro, and I'm good with that. Like, I'm cool with that. So I don't care if I call myself a Mormon. If that's what's true, that's what I want. I want to pursue Christ. And I think that's the heart. I'm not trying to make myself the standard for the, for the Christian heart by no means, <laughs> but <laughs> I think that's the heart we need to start to have whenever it comes to these conversations about systematic theology. You know what we were talking about, Tyler? We were talking about Toby. <laughs> That's what we were talking about when you had that revelation. We were talking about Toby. If anybody wants to know, there's an episode where Tyler previously talked to another Calvinist while he was a Calvinist. And this dude was yeah. like, I'm way more Calvinist than you. And Tyler was like, yeah, you can totally be more Calvinist than me. That's fine. Like, you, you sound nuts, bro. He yeah, was, was the Calvinist. Bro, he was the Calvinist that told other people that they were damned. If you believed in free will, you were damned. Period. And subject. Okay. Yeah. That that's totally. Oh yeah, I have I have some people that will be likely watching this video and will likely be commenting that sort of rhetoric <laughs> in the comments because we we have a couple that I, I I don't I don't say this intentionally pejoratively, but it's just I don't know any other label to give certain people who just regularly every video like they're the first to comment and they always have the same thing to say and it's something about. <laughs> You're a free will worshiping, you know, if you read the Bible and you come away with free will, then you're basically you're damned to hell. And, and you're, you yeah. know, they, they draw pretty quick, hard lines, uh, pretty so unashamedly. I guess and I, <laughs> all, all the early church fathers were damned to hell, like every one of them at that yeah, point. So right. where does your, where does Christianity start then for these people? But that's a different subject. We'll, we'll, yeah. We won't get on that. Well, so... To kind of wrap up what has turned into now about a 30-minute <laughs> segment, um, <laughs> un unintentionally, but I would just say that I, so on the one hand, I have an issue with, with putting too much emphasis on correct thinking as the kind of determiner of, of whether you're, you're in a valid right standing with God or not. Um, right. And so I hesitate and I kind of push back against the people who come in the comments saying you need to just, you know, why are you saying all these things about Calvinism and aren't just calling it what it is? So I kind of push back to that. But then at the same time, I don't want to underplay how 
I, I have an issue with Calvinism. I have a big, big issue with it. And, and I don't want to underplay the, I think the seriousness that I, I think there is here in, in its potential to spiritually, emotionally uh, damage people. I think it, it can and does because any false conception of God that we have uh, like you, you mentioned earlier, Josh, it's just not going to work with reality. And so th this is just kind of a, uh, a way of just kind of saying, I, I don't want what I just said, and I don't think you guys would either to be taken as, as saying, so it doesn't, you know, ultimately doesn't really matter. Uh, this, this conversation really is kind of irrelevant because at the end of the day, God's just looking at our hearts anyways. And so, you know, just believe what you want, uh, you know, and, and go on with your, your life. I think that's, that's definitely not, there is, we all come here, I think, believing that this, this is a big issue. Um, Calvinism is presenting uh, views of God and what it, what it looks like and how he relates to his created world uh, mm -hmm. that are, are just not accurate and therefore not helpful ultimately in our, uh, in our walk with him and our, our effectiveness as imaging, uh, God in the world, uh, and fulfilling right. that, you know, ultimate purpose. I think it's a hindrance to that. It's, it's a blot and blemish, uh, uh, as, as Paul talks about, you know, that, that the goal is that the church would be holy and blameless and that every blot and blemish will be removed, will be cleansed. Will and, and I, I just think that that's what Calvinism is. It's a uh, a blot or blemish on on the the, the bride, and um, and so though I do not agree with those who just want us to make the hard line kind of condemnation uh, statements, uh, I also don't want that to be taken as as me not not really thinking this is a big deal or that Calvinism is. A, a problem uh, because it is, and it's one worth having these conversations about. Well, and keep in mind too, Jordan, that these things, the all systems, right? If you're like leaving a system or you're just coming into a system, they take time. They take time to really, you know, understand. They take time to really get into, and they also take time to leave. And so just because one person, and this is what I was talking about with repentance earlier, just because someone right now believes in Calvinism or whatever else, right? It doesn't mean they're going to stay there. Josh and I are prime examples of that. And exactly. so we can't label someone as a damned, you know, heretic that has no hope. No, these mm -hmm. conversations matter because repentance is real and there's always hope while we're still breathing, right? And so until you take that last breath, man, there's always time to repent. There's always time to change the way you think about things and to make those things an active force in your life to be the best Christian that you can be. So hmm. that's why they're important to me. Yeah. So, well, guys, let's jump. Uh, let's jump into your story here. And, and I think that, you know, they intertwine as we talked about. But I believe Josh's mm -hmm. story maybe starts first. Uh, and so, Josh, why don't you just jump in and kind of what what I'm hoping to get here is, you know, what what is it that, you know, I, I understand you kind of grew up in a sense in Calvinism uh, with with that uh, kind of taught to you from, you know, that, that was kind of what you were just 
Ray's knowing, uh, which will be a bit different, I think, uh, than than Tyler's experience. But kind of just talk about that initial, uh, you know, getting into Calvinism, how you, you know, and beyond just you hearing that as a as a kid or or. Uh, you know, just having always been been taught that way of understanding the Bible. But how did you personally get to where you, you know, internalized it in a way where it, this, like you yourself would would have, you know, owned it and it was beyond just something that you had always been taught? Okay. Well, I mean, obviously it was a bit of an inheritance for me uh, because I grew up in, you know, like a, a Southern Baptist church and I had, let's say, it was mostly implicit. It wasn't made. I like. I had never heard the word Calvinism in my church. I'll be honest with you. Like that was not a thing. People. Uh, most of the terminology that's uh, uh, commonly associated with Calvinism, like tulip or any of the other, uh, you know, the the way that the the five points have been articulated. None of that stuff was made explicit to me as I was growing up in that church. It was just. It was just taught implicitly in there, you know what I mean, where I grew up and I automatically had all the pieces in place that when when I confronted a, a particular verse or a passage or an idea or a question, the 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 ground floor had already been laid. I already had the assumptions and I didn't actually even have a reason to question the assumptions yet. And so when I when I was about 23, 24 years old uh, and I was very recently married and I had uh, you know, I had a son, uh, and he was very young and everything. Um, my, my wife and I actually started having, uh, turmoil and trouble in our marriage, uh, to the point where things started to go really South and it was looking like, you know, we, we might end up separating. Uh, and during that time, um, I would say that God made himself irrevocably known to me, uh, in a way that was, uh, very much a, a, a dramatic interruption. You know, it was one of those, well, God opened my eyes. My heart is awake now that that drastic conversion moment that Calvinism often tries to describe and offer to you. I had never had one of those because I grew up in the church. And so at this moment, I, I must be having that experience now. Oh, now I'm awake. You know what I mean? And I had that and it began to map properly. And so because I already had the pieces handed to me, I had some way to map them out and fit them inside this framework that I was granted. Um, and so as that began to happen, I started to take more seriously my need for prayer, my need for this, and then just, the, just, you know, forwardly participating and trying to be part of the kingdom and learn more and study the word and, and, and all these things, you know, glean from, from, you know, brilliant men of the past and even of the present favorite hero teachers, like, you know, Sproul and MacArthur and, uh, Bauckham and, um, you know, just, just guys that I would, I would constantly come back. I was, you know, I had a quick tab on my, on my computer for carm.com and like, just, I, I was, I was in it, bro. I was like in it, in it. And, and was, and was wholesale convinced that if you did not believe these things, that there was something wrong with your church, something wrong with your pastor or something wrong with you. The only options I was really left with were you either are a nefarious deceiver or you're deceived. That's why you don't accept Calvinism. Those were the two answers that I had for that. You were either so deceived that you've been tricked into thinking this or that, or you must be this villainous deceiver who's trying to trick other people out of the rightful truth and all these things. And so I was very, very 
uh, uh, passionate and, and wholesale about these ideas so much so that I was actually, uh, you know, actually being a moderator and an admin for online, uh, discussion forums and even for Facebook groups and things like that. I had a really big network of people who I was involved with. And I was, let's say on the inside, that was kind of an addiction that I had formed is feeling like I needed to be in the inner circle of something. And Calvinism gives you this kind of esoteric inner circle, uh, feeling. It's very close, close knit, very self-reliant, internally consistent thing. And so during that process, um, I was, I was very strong with my wording. I have a very sharp tongue. You probably can't tell now because I'm wiser, let's say. Um, but at the time I had a very sharp tongue. I could, I could cut somebody down in, in an instant. I learned it, you know, very early on that if you know how to use words like tools, you can get somebody because tools can be a weapon if you know how to wield it right. Right. And so I was, I was being heretical. I was being that, that divisive person. I was being all the things that I now detest so deeply. And that's why for me, I'm very passionate about this is because I know who I was and what I was doing. And Tyler can attest to the fact that I am now the opposite of that because it appalled me so much to be awakened to that reality that I ran hundred hundred percent in the opposite direction. Some maybe maybe to danger in some areas, but you know, for the most part, it actually was a, a holistic correction to my person to be able to come outside that arrogance. Um, but but there there came a time where I was actually starting to have some difficulties with reconciling the ideas that I had already been so solidified in with some of the things that I was now encountering that I, I was, I was reading from authors uh, that were not Calvinists that when I started reading from them, I didn't know they weren't Calvinists or I wouldn't have been reading from them. Um, but, but at the time I was, I was already, let's say knee deep in, in reading, uh, from, from, from other different authors who weren't Calvinists. And then I started encountering their ideas that were in direct opposition to the my Calvinism and I'm sitting here like, well, that is just, I like, how, what am I supposed to do with that? Remember reading, uh, uh, the problem of pain by CS Lewis for the first time and being like, he doesn't affirm total depravity. What? How? like heretic dude. No. Yeah. Like he's brilliant. <laughs> how does he not know is, is CS Lewis a deceiver? You know, and I'm, I'm starting to feel like, there you go. Yep. Am I, am I willing to say I'm smarter than CS Lewis? I'm not really sure I'm going to step into that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like that's a really dangerous pile of something to step into mm. because I already knew, like, I was like, oh, well, this guy's blowing me away. Look at all this. It's amazing. And then I got confronted with the idea that he was at like at odds entirely with, with the ideas that I was coming to his books with and mm -hmm. started to, you know, ask some of the people that I had been really close knit with. Hey guys, what do you do with this? And then they started getting suspect of me and they started treating mm. me suspect. They started like excluding me from chats and, 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 you know, talking about me behind my back. And I can tell it's all very weirdly orchestrated backdoor dealings and stuff like that. And almost, let's say I, I went this from, I went from being on the inside to very quickly being blacklisted by these people, uh, like wholesale all of a sudden. This textbook cult behavior though. Uh, mm. just, just, just throw that in there. That's what that yeah. is. I agree. I agree. And I, that's why I used the language earlier is that it's kind of cultish to have this barrier between you and inquiry. And I didn't, I didn't realize this where I was living was behind the barrier, you know? And so mm -hmm. I started to ask the questions. I started to get treated like an outsider. I then was shoved outside. And by that point, 
all of the, the bandaid had been ripped off all of the apprehension I had to what will they think of me? Will I lose all my friends? What will this mean? Like I'll have to rebuild everything. It's like, that was all ripped from me anyway. So I was like, you know what? I might as well just figure this out now because I already lost all the things I was terrified of, of, of putting into jeopardy by posing these questions. All that was ripped away. So I might as well just continue on and figure out what in the world is going on here. And it was probably about six months after that time that I actually met Tyler. Uh, and I was, it was still a very, very fresh wound for me, but I had very deeply been convicted about my approach, about my attitude, about my way of thinking, about my, my assumptions that I brought towards somebody, my lack of, my lack of, uh, uh, empathy for the person and where they are actually believing what they believe. Like I could no longer justify assuming the person I was talking to was a villainous deceiver. I had to just treat them like a person because who the hell am I? What do I know? You know what I mean? And so I, I, this grand flip-flop in my attitude that happened. Uh, and then Tyler happened to add me because of one of the theological groups that we, that we shared. And then one after one, one morning I was at church, I got a messenger call from, from Tyler who had added me a couple weeks ago. We had never even had a conversation before. And he calls me on messenger, super random. And I'm in church and I was like, what the? so I actually uh, completely out of character for myself, got up, walked out of church and answered a phone call. I was like, hello. And he's, Tyler was asking for prayer because his nephew was missing and there was a bunch of other things and he just needed somebody to talk to and pray with and ask a couple of questions. And I just happened to be that guy. And, and that man from there, it was like, that was really brave and bold. I don't know this guy, but he just trusted me. And that's insane. Like sparks flew, huh? Yeah. And it was just like, and I had no idea he was coming into Calvinism. He had no idea I was coming out, but God was like, irrelevant friends. Now. I had no idea this dude was three hours behind me. Okay. I did not mean to call you in church, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's pretty much where my, where my story, uh, uh, picks up and then intertwines with Tyler's. That's, that's ultimately okay. where I was in that position was my whole cage had just been rattled loose. Like everything was, was jostled. I was in a like whirlwind of chaos, but like he said, you know what? I might not be able to see what's going on, but behind the fog out there somewhere, there's a strong tower, and that's all I care about. It's going to show up. I'm just looking for the lighthouse. You know what I mean? And so when when that began to happen and all of these towers of certainty that I had built around myself began to fall down and I started to see the landscape, I was like, man, this place is huge and expanse. Christianity is amazing. Like, look at this. What a wealth of ideas and just wow you know what i mean like it just it really it changed everything to be like there's so much more than i had ever anticipated you know what i mean mm -hmm. and it just i i fell in love like christianity is amazing you know um and and so that 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 became the the journey that tyler and i began to share was like where do the boundaries live where's the where's hq i need to know where the center is i need to know where the margin is where do, how do we play with this you know and so that's <laughs> That's that's where where our stories start to intertwine real real well. Okay, so before we have Tyler kind of pick up there, I, could you like describe what version of Calvinism did you hold to? You know, because here's here's what you're going to get in the comments from somebody, if not you know five, six to a dozen people saying, well, they were you never Calvinists. They yeah, you, you don't, you don't understand, understand Calvinism, <laughs> which I feel like there, there's, there's some kind of like 
phenomenon going on there, I think, like psychological that that yeah. I would really like to get to the bottoms of as to why that is such a common response. Um, I think, to I think Calvinism, the reason but, for that response, specifically the reason for that response is what I laid out before. There are only two options here. I'm correct. Yes. That's not an option. That's just the facts. I'm correct. Mm -hmm. So the options are you're deceived or you're a deceiver. Yeah. And so you yeah. can't, if you, if you deny Calvinism, you simply can't understand it because it's not even on the yeah. table that I'm incorrect. Yeah. Right. And that's why, that's why the response is just instant knee jerk reaction yeah. is because there's no, there's no hook to hang the hat on. There's no way I can say, what if I'm wrong? How do I play gracefully with their ideas? That's mm -hmm. way too dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that, that's not I, even, yeah. Yeah. I totally, totally agree. It's coming from some, some assumptive place there, uh, which, which is a whole other conversation, but I just, I do find that fascinating. And, and I, because it, it's left me wondering if Calvinists could name even any, any non-Calvinist scholar theologian who they would say that person Though I don't agree with him, that person he understands Calvinism because I just think if if you can't look around and find any opposition, anybody who disagrees with your viewpoint and find somebody who you can say, yeah, they they understand it, they just honestly disagree with me. Uh, uh, if you can't find something like, if you can't find another person that disagrees with you that that you know you 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 can't do anything other than label them as you know, demonize their motives or, and intentions or, or just, you know, criticize basically their intellect and their capacity to understand uh, uh, what you do. I think that's, there's, there's a, there's a problem there. There, there's a, a, a severe closed mindedness, I think being demonstrated there that again, a whole other conversation, but, but <laughs> What what then was your just just so we we know like what was your version of Calvinism like what, did you hold the things like double predestination or yeah. the five the full five points um, yeah no, just I briefly kind of give us a, a a summary of of where you stood on those things um, I was definitely staunchly five points uh, double predestinarian um, I I was you know. If I if I had to make a comparison, it would probably be closest to like. I, I think I think my favorite teacher out of all the teachers that I had named was Vody Bauckham, because he was so passionate and so well worded. You know what I mean? And he knew how to mm -hmm. use his voice. He knows how to draw stories out, and he's just very skillful speaker, as well. But he was very bold, and so he was one of those people that brought his Calvinism into a confrontational offense stance and was willing to go this like forward. I have my sword, and I'll knock you down. You know what I mean? Like very mm -hmm. combative, very. So very you you like that? You know? That was attractive to you. I did. Yeah. I disdain it now, but I did definitely like the combativeness. <laughs> um, uh, I was, like I said, I have a very sharp tongue and I know how to use it. I, I choose not to. And so I think that when, if you know how to make someone hurt, um, you can, you can be, if, if I know how to, if I know what makes you hurt, I can be a hero to you, but I can very easily become a villain to you also. And so it's mm -hmm. a very hard line to walk in that. And I had fallen into the, the villain category, let's say, but my, my, Son, my flavor sons of God. Sorry. I was just going to say sons of God choose to be the heroes. So that needs to be clear. Son, sons of God 
children of God choose the one scenario over the other. That is, they exactly. choose to not to not take advantage of that capacity, that ability to make their opponent hurt. Uh, but they bless and do not curse. Uh, exactly. So I just, do I just not answer evil they, for evil. You know, yeah. And there's a bit of a, a a plague in Christians in this whole arena, I think, of forgetting that and thinking that you can you can on the one hand be behave as a child of God and and continue to slash your brothers down um, to 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 win the day and to have the victory in an argument. And I just I can't think of many things that are as non-christian uh, as that sort of uh behavior and and i have to you know watch myself too of course but um so so then with that again before we get tyler to jump in here so the double predestination and, and five points vody bacham style so what what then i, I kind of just want to make sure we understand where you were when you encountered tyler so what were some of the things you know obviously you're you're now uh questioning Calvinism, uh, what, what were some of the, the weak points, I guess, or the things that, you know, you, you said you had these, oh, no moments of, oh, wait a minute. Uh, so what were some of those things? Like, what was it about the, the doctrines of grace, tulip, uh, uh, Calvinism that you before had been, you know, uh, fully okay with and in agreement with, but you began to question and doubt and see some, some weaknesses in. Um, the main, I can say the main problem and virtually every problem that I encountered since then has stemmed from this main problem is that total depravity began to fall apart. And it's really mm -hmm. the linchpin of the entire systematic total mm -hmm. depravity. In other words, total inability, right? Your inability to positively respond to God without God's direct intervention to bring about that response is actually the foundation stone upon which everything else is laid. You don't need an unconditional election if you're capable of responding to the gospel. You don't need an irresistible grace if you're capable of responding to the gospel. You don't need an atonement that is limited if God doesn't have to select beforehand some to be saved and some to be damned because you're incapable. You know, and we don't, we don't need a P to preserve the saints if before you are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, you're capable of responding to the gospel. How much more are you capable? Of, of, of abiding in Christ once you have granted the spirit. And so without total depravity, the entire system began to, to kind of fold into a, a, a house of cards. And the way that this actually became relevant and very troublesome to me was starting to read, like I said, uh, uh, The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis and seeing the way that he actually brought out the accountability for proper theology. Uh, from from the idea of total depravity and said, ultimately, if if let's say the way that he articulated it was something like if if my ideas of good can be so far off because of my mm. tainted consciousness my incapable spirit and my evil dirty fleshly self that makes me something like sin incarnate if that's what i am and my what i think is goodness differs from god's goodness so much that my my black can be his white and so on 
they can actually be at odds so much that like, it's not like I'm drawing a circle. Oh, that's crap. But God can create like a real circle. Right. And so that like the idea of my circle, even though it's imperfect and all that is actually something that looks even a little bit like a touchstone for what God's perfection is. If my hmm. goodness and his goodness are at so much odds that they can be opposites, then I can mean absolutely nothing by calling him good. And an unknown quality in God is hardly a reason to worship him. Right. And if I'm willing to worship something that is an unknown quality in a deity that I cannot qualify, then I need to be equally ready to worship an omniscient fiend. Right. Mm -hmm. Because ultimately there is no distinction anymore because when I call good, it's a word without meaning because good can be something completely different to God. Right. And that means that for God, it could be good to uh, backbite and, and betray your neighbors. It could be good to do any number of things. Hence the introduction of, a, of, of two contrary wills in God and everything else. And these, this really started to make a problem for me, especially when I started to read some of the quotes from the early church about what freedom of the will amounts to. They weren't looking at it as I'm powerful and I'm trying to steal God's glory. That's never been an argument for free will for anybody until the Calvinists. Right. The argument for free will is, was, in fact, if you're working out of mere instinct, you're of no more blameworthiness than a lion who eats meat. Lions didn't choose morally to kill so that they could, you know, cause you pain and, and do evil to you. They're simply hungry. Right. Mm -hmm. And if if evil and sin happens to me as naturally as a sneeze, I'm not blameworthy for it. And so in order to maintain this system of blameworthiness and praiseworthiness, I needed something that made sense of those things. And determinism simply doesn't cut the mustard. And I, I you know, I learned about compatibilism and things like that during that time. Uh, I quickly, probably more quickly than I should have, spanned over a, a, a variety of views about compatibilism and the idea that, you know, moral accountability can be compatible with determinism. And I just was not sold on any of it. Uh, and so I, you know, that was the main issue for me was okay. um, that there was a judgment, that there is condemnation, that sin is a real thing. And my worldview at the time just didn't, it, it didn't have anything. It didn't have a holding place for all of those things to be realities. I would love to dive more into the total depravity stuff here, here, hopefully if we, we have some time, especially since that was one of the major issues that, that kind of drove you out of it. But Tyler, let's have you jump in here. So you met Josh um, kind of as as he was on his way out the door and you were on your way in the door uh, to yeah. Calvinism. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Um, so I, for those who don't know, I've given uh, my testimony, you know, a few times on Faith Unaltered now. But for those that haven't seen that per se, uh, I grew up in a home that went to church on Sundays and Christmas and Easter and any other day of the week or any other time other than those days, practicing Christianity was the furthest thing from my mind. And so not only that, but, you know, with my parents and well, really it was just me and my parents since I'm not an only child, but my brother and my sister are about 20 years older than I am. And so we they were already gone uh, out of the house at that point uh, before I even came along. And so I was back and forth with my mom and my dad. They got divorced whenever I was two years old. And so from two until about 18, it was custody battles. But both of them tried, you know, with, with the whole church thing. 
uh, my mom a little more so than my dad. Um, but, uh, but you know, I'm thankful for my mom that she exposed me to Jesus at a, at an early age. It didn't take. Um, and what I mean by that is as soon as 18 hit and I moved out, went to Florida with my dad, I lived in Pensacola for around seven, seven and a half years. And I had my, my wild streak. I was very, very reserved whenever I was in school. Uh, but the minute that 18 hit and I, and I moved to the big city, so to say, we, I come from a town of about 2000 people. And so to go from that to about a hundred thousand people, it was a complete paradigm shift for me. And I wanted to explore and I did, I did explore. Um, I, I wanted to be in a hard rock band and I did that for a little while. And, uh, and which I think is another reason that Josh and I connected so well, we're both musicians. Um, and, uh, that was another thing that we could talk about outside of Christianity and theology. But long story short, I got, while I was down there in Florida, I got addicted to pills. Uh, the worst of my worst painkillers were my uh, drug of choice. The worst of my worst was whenever I went to the hospital seven times in seven days, uh, either for withdrawal symptoms or to, well, mainly it was, it was uh, withdrawal symptoms uh, the, and, and never, never really overdosed, right? But it was by the grace of God. Uh, I got to a point where I was taking like 20, 20 Lortab 10s a day, and it, it was just bad. It was just bad. And so anyway, long story short, uh, that was the time that I met, because my dad, he played pool uh, in a community center, an old, you know, an old folks community center and a senior, senior community center. And, uh, he connected with this gentleman by the name of Alpha Gibson. Uh, we called him Hoot. He was, he was a blast. I, I really like Hoot and I, I thank him, uh, for, uh, ended up leading, leading me to the Lord. He was what you would, or what he self-identified as a 25 point Calvinist. And I've got these tapes oh, that boy. he still has sent me. So these are all from Dr. S. Lewis Johnson, there's about I'm gonna say hold on over a hold on. You said hundred hours here. Twenty. Yeah. He, he self-identified as a 20, twenty-five point. Calvinist. Twenty-five point Calvinist. That's his words. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So he said, Tyler, I'm, I'm not sorry. a five-point Calvinist. I asked him one day because this was whenever I was just first getting into this thing. I said, Hoot, are you a five-point Calvinist? He goes, Tyler. I'm a 25-point Calvinist. <laughs> They're multiplying. <laughs> Run. <laughs> yes, Jedi. Wow. <laughs> I shall learn from thee. <laughs> but And I did. And I did. So he gave me these, these tapes here. Uh, like I said, there's probably about 100 hours from S. Lewis Johnson. And for those that don't know uh, S. Lewis, he taught and preached at Dallas uh, Theological Seminary uh, and, and specifically in Believer's Chapel is where uh, S. Lewis uh, preached. Uh, he passed away. I, I don't remember when exactly, but he's no longer you know, here on earth. He's no longer with us. Uh, but that was my first experience into Calvinism. So not only did I have an intense 75-year-old-plus uh, man <laughs> telling me about the Lord, it was always with this Calvinistic spin mm -hmm. to it. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so... I never heard anything like that. So to to understand this really fully, the church that I grew up in was an independent fundamentalist Baptist King James only church. Okay, completely different spectrum of Christianity 
from what Calvinism was. So the things that I was used to hearing, rededicate your life to Christ, sign this card and be born again, again, and to, to go from that to you know things like total depravity, I mean, again, another paradigm shift. And so I experienced two major paradigm shifts from whenever I moved to Florida to begin with, and then to encounter Calvinism just right off the bat as not a believer to um, to giving my life to Christ, to use our, our independent fundamentalist lingo, um, that that was two you know big worldview shifts for me, just kind of back to back. Um, other uh, th- so. From that point, I studied a little bit. I wasn't necessarily, Hoot and I met on a regular basis, and I ended up moving back to Indiana because I thought that I had a daughter uh, up here. Turns out, long story short, she wasn't my daughter, and that, that really, that got to me for a little bit. But at that point, I had already professed faith in Christ. Um, I, I knew things were going to be okay. Like, I wouldn't have taken it the way that I did, just knowing me previous, like pre-Christ, I wouldn't have took it the way that I did without Jesus. And so there was still this, and th- and that really boils down to what I said earlier about this whole, if Calvinism crumbles at the end of the day, I still had Jesus. Because I've never felt like even switching from Calvinism to orthodoxy, that I ever lost Christ or that I gained him whenever I, w- whenever I had made the, sh- the switch to orthodoxy. From that point that I encountered Christ for the first time, I felt like I've always had him. And so he was always someone I could rely on. And so at that time, I knew things were going to be fine. And so I ended up moving out of the place that I was living at with my ex at this point and her little girl and ended up moving back in with my mom. So this was a time that I worked and I went to my mom's. And that's whenever I got a lot of uh, exposure to different Calvinists other than S. Lewis Johnson. I just finished up those tapes. And so I was on to John MacArthur. I was on to R.C. Sproul. And then I encountered the Lord and Savior himself, James White. <laughs> but they, but I like, so, sorry. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be like that, man. But honestly, like, I, I really, was, I really you, do. You had a very prominent view of James White, though, I'm assuming. I love James White. Like I yeah. love Dr. White. I I never heard so I never been exposed to apologetics before before uh-huh. I started listening to uh Dr. Dr. White. And to hear him go up against these Roman you know these Roman Catholics and saying the same stuff that I had just spent all that time, you know, learning about, you know, from a Calvinist perspective, I was like, "Man, this guy's awesome. Like I never, I, cause I heard, always heard it preached to me, but to engage with someone else who had a differing view on it, that was totally new. So again, another paradigm shift, so to say, uh, or maybe just a context shift. Yeah. Yeah. Because that dude couldn't lose in my mind, like greatest apologist ever. And I still have respect for Dr. White's apologetics. I mean, I really do. Uh, he set the ground floor for a lot of, you know, up and coming apologists and, and those who weren't there to begin with. I mean, he set the the groundwork for that. So so I'll always have respect for for Dr. White in that sense. Um but but I so I wanted to learn from him because I uh-huh. wanted to I kept having questions, you know, asked me, what's Calvinism? Now let me tell you, so moving back to the town of two thousand people, there's a lot of Pentecostals around here and a lot of General Baptists. There are no Calvinists. So this 
me being the only Calvinist in town, I got a lot of questions whenever I actually started engaging with other Christians about what it was that they believed. And so I had to learn how to engage with those people. And so anyway, long story short, found Dr. White. And this was about the time that I made the phone call to Josh. And the whole reason that the phone call had nothing to do with Calvinism, I never would have thought that this phone call <laughs> that I was about to make would lead to the conversations and just in-depth theological discussions that Josh and I would have. I mean, I, I've told the story before, tears were shed many of nights from both sides on on these conversations. I mean, th that's how deep and really passionate they were. And so I call Josh because I've got a missing nephew. Now, granted, remember I said my brother's and my brother and sister is 20 years older than me. And so that puts my nephew older than me as well, right around five, six years. And so with that being said, by the way, my brother had his kid whenever he was young. So that, that's how that math works out. But anyway, long story short, my nephew just went missing. I called Josh to pray for me. Uh, I was making a couple phone calls that day, you know, just for people that I had engaged with before um, to pray for me. Uh, Josh did, and that started this friendship of, again, remember, I'm just encountering James White for the first time about the time I, I, I engaged with Josh. And so that conversation led to different conversations about theological determinism, uh, total depravity, irresistible grace, you know, unconditional election, the whole tulip scheme. And, and I think even a little bit further than that, even uh, with, you know, the Calvinistic understanding of covenant theology and and just different just totally different you know things uh but all having to do with calvinism and from josh's perspective non-calvinism and so josh leading like just coming out of this was really interesting to me because now i'm at a point where i can start taking what i've learned from dr white and applying it in real life josh is really my only challenger at this point because you know just like, like i said we didn't do apologetics around here people asked me what i believe i would tell them we would discuss back and forth a little bit but that was it but to have two three hour sometimes four hour conversations with this dude like i didn't experience that here and so and he didn't go easy on me either <laughs> no no we we didn't um it, it was it, it like i really enjoyed that time though like to to just build and and build on each other and sharpen each other um, I, I got to a point, you know, it, it was little bit after I think maybe a year and Josh, I've told you this before, but I started questioning my friendship with Josh because I was under the impression that, well, Calvinism's the truth. Why ain't this guy believing what I'm saying? He's always got a rebuttal. He's always got a refutation. Why won't he just get it? And especially coming out of Calvinism, man, he can't understand it, right? I said, why don't the dude get it? And I, I got to question my friendship. I, I talked to my, my well, she wasn't my wife at the time. Uh, she was, I think, my fiance at the time. And if not my fiance, just, you know, it was soon to be. But um, I asked her, I said, you know, what? like, you get Calvinism. I get Calvinism. We're at a church that actually teaches Calvinism. I said, why can't Josh get Calvinism? He's my only friend that didn't get Calvinism at that time. <laughs> and I was like, I don't know if I can be friends with this guy anymore. I said, clearly the Holy Spirit's not working in him. Um, yeah, but, obviously, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I like he would get deceiver. truth there if it, it is. is. You were. That's <laughs> a villain. You were. And but you were but yeah, anyway. Um so we kept talking, we kept talking, and then now so let me fast forward because the whole five years that I was a Calvinist up until I started questioning five, six years, uh so I started questioning things. That was really what Josh and I did. We we engaged with each other, we fought each other, you know, we made up afterwards and then we'd fight again and then we'd go get a beer and drink it, you know. Never met Josh in my life one time, but you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so Tim Dr. Tim Stratton comes along, right? That we we've got the we've got the complete centers guide up and running. Josh is actually I think were you a co host at that time? Mm-hmm. I know I had started with a few different people and I was like the complete centers guide was the next alpha and omega ministries. And what I mean by that is not necessarily in viewership, but I wanted to teach Calvinism to anybody that would listen to me. And so that was really the complete centers guide was the Calvinist, you know, uh, the Calvinist show basically. Anyway, so Josh gets on and we actually, uh, work out a deal to where he's going to be a co-host on the Calvinism only show, right? You see how this works out. And so he, uh, we, we do some shows, this, that, and the other. And then Dr. Tim Stratton, uh, gets, gets, uh, introduced to me. And then, uh, I bring him on and, and we, uh, and, and Josh and I, I think Josh is the one that actually set up that first interview. And what, what Dr. Stratton said blew my mind. I hadn't read his book was out. I hadn't read his book. Um, and I, I really didn't know about free thinking ministries. I had heard of him because through Leighton flowers, we had Leighton flowers on a couple of times, uh, with, with JD Martin. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, uh, Jordan, but, really. but another one of my, you know, Calvinist friends, uh, he was an apologist. I got to, I got to know a lot of different Calvinistic apologists uh, at this time through Facebook. And so we would talk, I'd have them on. And so, like I said, Dr. Tim Stratton gets introduced and when we interview him and what he said blew my mind, I, I, I'd never heard really, I mean, I had heard like, cause him and Dr. Flowers have similar arguments. William, uh, William Lane Craig, uh, you know, Tim works under him. And so there, there was similar argumentation there. But this free thinking argument kept sticking with me because his whole verse and, and, and he's got multiple passages that, that he argues, but the foundational passage that Dr. Stratton always used was first Corinthians 10, 13. And that was one passage that did not, I struggled with it for the entire time that I was a Calvinist Jordan. And I, I just, I, whenever I got to that passage, in my you know readings of scripture, I would just kind of read past it, and I really didn't have an answer for it, and so I just kept going. I just kept going because if determinism is true, what's the point of a door being put? I can take it. I'm determined to walk through. So anyway, so just just is, so people know, First uh, yeah, Corinthians thirteen. Yeah. Can I read it real quick? So yeah, you said yeah. First, go ahead. First Corinthians ten thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. Which says, um, no, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So this is a passage that 
you didn't know how to to basically read in a Calvinistic light. What's the point of putting a way of escape there? I use a, a, the door analogy, right? You got a door to walk through. It's just, will you walk through it if you're determined to do the sin? Like, what's the point of putting a way of escape if you're determined to sin? And so that really didn't make a lot of sense to me as a Calvinist. And so with that being said, Dr. Tim and I, or Dr. Stratton and I, developed a friendship that we would call each other you know it was almost like me and josh there uh for a little bit instead of calling each other you know every day though that lasted about a month or so with dr stratton because i just wanted to pick his brain because i like i said i never heard this free thinking argument before and so using that in com combination with first corinthians ten thirteen, that was the answer that i was looking for that i never was satisfied in calvinism with right um, I, I tried the whole, you know, I thought compatibilism at the time was this idea that God determined some things. I determined some things didn't know that that would set up the, uh, the whole Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, spectrum for me to just walk right into, uh, as a Calvinist at that point, but that was my idea of compatibilism. So I misunderstood it. So we had after, after the, the Stratton show, we had Chris date, we had George, uh, uh, um, uh, oh man. Andrew Jeremiah. Elliott and Jeremiah Short. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the Black Doctor and and Andrew Elliott, and the way they laid out Reformed theology, especially with determinism, and the way Josh was asking questions, that was really the first time these alt alternative explanations of the Scripture and the way that Josh had been telling me for years, bro, finally started clicking, and I got to thinking instead of given an answer for Josh's questions, I was actually listening to what he was asking them and listening to their responses and How what they is. were saying. Oh man, How it hard was. it is to get to that point, isn't it? How it hard was. It took me five years, bro, to get there because I wanted to give the answers. And that was an ego thing for me. Like, I don't know if other mm -hmm. people struggle with that. I'm assuming they do. But oh, yeah. for me, it was an ego thing. And so I, I, Finally got there. Josh had been talking to me about, you know, asking questions, this, that, and the other. And I started listening. I finally started listening. And what they were saying didn't make any sense. The author oh. analogy, it didn't make sense. <laughs> and I'm not trying to be mean. I'm not trying to be rude. Just to me at that point, I started seeing holes in it, right? And so I'd ask Dr. Stratton, well, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Yeah, yeah, you're getting it. You're getting it. I was like, no way. And <laughs> so it was, uh, and, I, and I'm, I feel like I'm rambling, but... It wasn't long after after that that we did the final episode with Dr. Stratton, and what we did was set up a debate between him and Chris Date. And I said, "This is it. This is I'm going to put these two together because that's how I always learned the best before was listening to James White engage with you know the the opposing uh, opinion mm -hmm. and just listen to how those two interacted." And that's how, you know, I would, I found myself coming to truth, right? And so, long story short, we put Chris Date up against Dr. Stratton. And after that debate, I think I, we were still on the live stream. Uh, we were, it, the, the stream had ended, but we were still on StreamYard talking. And I told Josh straight up, I said, I'm done. Like, I, I cannot be a determinist anymore. Free will, libertarian free will, made so much sense to me after that debate. And it finally clicked 
to where I felt comfortable saying that I affirm this at this point. And so we did that. It wasn't long after that. So the minute that that really, you know, happened for me was, okay, it seems like the Calvinists are wrong about this. I tried to search for an answer and I never found one that was satisfactory to me. Right. And because I would keep asking different questions and they wouldn't be able to answer these questions. And so anyway, long story short, it wasn't long after that before limited atonement. It was for me was the next thing to go. Um, after that happened, I, and it's interesting really, because after that happened for me, it wasn't necessarily, okay, what's the next thing on the Calvinism scale? And I'm not like trying to be too forward with orthodoxy on this point, but this is my story. And, uh, Protestantism was the next thing to go for me. And it was interesting that that happened because I started Joshua Sherman is a good friend of Josh and mine, and he had just converted. So he was just baptized into the Eastern Orthodox Church about this time that I started questioning and and had left determinism full stop. Um, Like I said, limited atonement was the next thing to go, but it was really the determinism, you know, me affirming libertarian free will that Sherman had thrown Eastern Orthodoxy into my lap. And so about the time that I started studying limited atonement and penal substitutionary atonement um, was the time that I started picking up on different you know, orthodox teachings and, and wanted to study that a little bit further. And so it wasn't long. I mean, there was no getting rid of total depravity, unconditional election. No, no, no. It was more like, for me, get rid of sola scriptura and sola fide. Now I've just knocked out the two of the five pillars of Calvin or of Protestantism and a three legged table is awful wobbly, bro. And so I said, okay, I've got to do something with this now. So I'm in the mindset of, you know, again, another big paradigm shift for me. And, and so that was about nine months ago now that I had actually Hmm. converted. I'm not baptized in the church yet. I'm still a catechumen, but that I invested all my eggs into one basket, so to say, with the Orthodox position. I know I couldn't do Roman Catholicism. There was just too many holes that I saw there. And I was pretty confident that I was out, going out of, I had one foot out the door already with Protestant uh, theology. And Orthodoxy just, I mean, it it was like a natural, it was the most natural transition like even more natural than coming out of a non-believing background into even a Christian. Like, cause that took some time. This didn't seem like it took any time at all for me um, because I saw the holes and I said, I need, I don't need something to fill these holes. I need a system without holes in it. You know, that, that, that at least I can find answers that are suitable to me. And orthodoxy was that that system. Um, it's more like a lifestyle uh, for me. So I say all that to sum sum up my story. You know, mm-hmm. I started out independent fundamentalist, King James only. <laughs> Go to that, have my apostate period, 
it get introduced to Calvinism five years later, start investigating Orthodoxy, and now I'm a catechumen in the Orthodox Church. So the Eastern Orthodox Church. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's really my story. <laughs>